electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanier with David Faber, Mike Santoli, as Cramer has the morning off. Futures are weak following the worst day in a month. And uh, projected losses for the week as well. Intel's results don't help. China telling the U.S. to close its consulate in Chengdu. GOP stimulus will have to wait until Monday, we think. Oil 4140. Uh, David, Jim, you and I uh, talked for a long time about Mike Pence's speech, Hawkeye's speech on China from a year or two ago. But Pompeo yesterday yeah. uh, sort of won up that. And this consulate news from China is weighing on sentiment, too. Yeah, uh, he upped the ante. And it's true. Uh, Jim did focus us at the time on Vice President Pence's speech because it was quite, I guess, truculent would be a a word to describe it at the time. But uh, it continues to go up in terms of the tensions, Carl. And we've talked about it pretty much every day, uh, whether it's a back and forth over Huawei, whether it has to do with conversations about closing down the app TikTok in the United States, whether it is the closing of consulates here and the response from the Chinese This is not going in a direction that many who at least are invested in the idea of global trade, certainly, Mike, would want to see. For sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, on the one hand, the market is not necessarily, first of all, overly focused to this point on these uh, on these relationships and uh, not really counting on anything to come out of it. It's not quite like uh, the suspense leading up to some kind of trade deal, which at least promised to lift the threat of further tariffs. This is much more background uh, noise. It's sort of a sense of, OK, I guess we're going to be in for a phase of the next few months of a couple of candidates competing to be tough on China or how how we're going to have to worry about this. That said, um, I do think the market's dealing with its own issues. And this is just one of these unwelcome uh, kind of things from uh, from from a different direction. Markets dealing with huge tech stocks pulling back after getting overheated, overloved, overcrowded, overowned. Everybody's been saying it for weeks. They haven't gone anywhere in a few weeks. Now they're pulling back. And the real question is, can the rest of the market just kind of absorb that if this is all just going to be, as it is now, a routine pullback in some of the favorite names? Uh, and so far, it's OK. It just seems like the market as a whole is sort of back in the trading range. We, we got stuck in uh, for six weeks starting in June. That's where the S&P uh, sits right now. So the China stuff on top of it, uh, absolutely not welcome. But I don't think that this was a market already geared for some kind of global production trade revival uh, that this would now threaten, Carl. Yeah, interesting. You know, Mike, you mentioned the names, the earnings names that have not done well in the wake of results this week alone. Netflix, Intel, obviously, we'll talk about in a moment. Microsoft, Citrix. Uh, David, I mean, if we're relying on the uh, on X tech to support us, it's going to be a challenge given that open table, Google mobility, jobless claims, uh, the New York Fed economic index are all suggesting that the economy, if not rolling over, is at least flattening out. Yeah, we're, we're not seeing the growth that we were a month ago. Even the jobless claims number, of course, uh, Carl, also showing 
uh, a, a weakening again, perhaps. And that's the concern. Uh, uh, listen, California, Texas and Florida are not insignificant states. I know everybody knows that they're the three largest states in the country. Their their economies alone are enormous uh, and taken together. Uh, that adds up. And when they are all dealing with, uh, well, you heard uh, Governor Abbott earlier on Squawk Box of Texas, of course, he's talking about a plateau there. But they're not ready to fully open up again after having rolled back a bit in terms of what's going on. And obviously economic activity in those states, particularly that of consumers in terms of going out, going to restaurants, bars and all the other things, uh, has pulled back a bit. That's going to have an impact, uh, Mike. Although, again, that's one sector of the market and not necessarily related to the big names that, as you pointed out, have leveled off a little bit of late. Yeah. but certainly have powered us for quite some time. Yeah, it's interesting because you do have that unease about exactly what the cadence of, of this uh, economic uh, revival, if that's what it's going to be, is right now. Ten-year uh, Treasury yield still under 0.6 percent. The bond market has never really wavered from this view that, look, there's going to be a ton of economic slack for a long period of time. Um, but uh, the, the way the market dealt with that for a long time was, oh, we'll just hide in the big NASDAQ stocks because as a category, they represent quality and safety. So maybe that trade uh, is being challenged just a little bit right here. And, uh, and actually, uh, not quite in the, uh, in the FANG area, but in, in big tech. We are going to dig deeper right now into Intel following those numbers last night. It's warning uh, of a delay in developing new chip technology. Shares tumbling this morning back in a negative territory for the year. And it's been uh, pretty much a uh, unanimous and, and vociferous uh, voice from the street that it was a big disappointment. Joining us now on the CNBC Newsline, Morgan Stanley analyst uh, Joseph Moore. Joe, uh, good morning. Uh, put this into context for us in terms of the reaction to this um, news that Intel had yesterday of a delay in this generation of new products. And what does it mean for the competitive landscape for Intel? And, and I guess, is it now getting uh, already built into uh, the valuation? Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, yeah, so it was a, a lot of moving parts to the Intel numbers, I would say, both the product delay uh, and the third quarter guidance indicates some some issues. In terms of the product delay, you know, the company has struggled with 10 nanometer for the last couple of years. They seem to be getting on somewhat firmer footing there. Uh, but the comment that they made last night is that the first 7 nanometer microprocessor products are sort of delayed from first half of calendar 22 to second half of calendar 22. And that's kind of, it's probably more concerning in light of the ongoing issues that they've had than any than the specific six-month issue. I would say that um, the a mitigating factor is that they've also talked about more willingness to use Foundry and to outsource uh, to make sure that the products are on time. So, so I think the hope would be that with 10 nanometer, we had a delay not just of manufacturing technology, but a delay of the whole product roadmap. I think the hope that they're expressing on the call is that, you know, we'll still have our 7 nanometer product portfolio on time, even if we need to go external uh, to, to get there. And that, that's a big departure for Intel. So overall, certainly the, the product issues uh, remain a little bit of a concern. I'm probably more focused on the second half guidance uh, and the issues that that, that may present. But uh, certainly the product issues are, are a little bit daunting as well. Now, the outlook implied by the second half guidance, uh, Joe, does it, does it mostly uh, come to bear with Intel or is it more of an industry call? Because you're seeing right now AMD uh, rallying uh, this morning on the uh, on the Intel numbers. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Intel's market share in, in data center is still 95 percent. So it's hard to to look at it as being too company specific. I would say 
you know, the interesting dynamic this year is that Intel has called out since January that this would be a very front-half-loaded year. They expected there to be some digestion in the second half, and so they're kind of guiding in line with that. But when you look at it, in the third quarter, the last five years, Intel has grown 13% sequentially, and they're guiding down after strong Q2 numbers. They're guiding down 8% sequentially. So you're, you know, 20 points below seasonal with PCs being down in a seasonally strong quarter and data center being down quite a bit. And I would view that as being a, a challenge to the overall compute space. And it's been kind of our view is that compute has been really strong in the first half and you sort of needed to rotate towards more cyclical economic exposure for the back half. And I think that's, that's playing out. Um, and I think we will see it in other names. Now, as far as AMD, you know, they're going to be a direct beneficiary of any delay at Intel because they, they directly compete. And so I get that reaction. And AMD is reporting next week. And they have exposure to the parts of the market that are probably a little bit more robust than Intel does. So I, it makes sense, the, the reaction that we're seeing there. Uh, but I would say that Intel is, is, you know, signaling that there's going to be a digestion window for server and cloud that I think will And where will does that take you to in terms of a bottom line on the stock for Intel? Right now, uh, with this morning's indicated decline, you're talking about under 12 times uh, expected earnings for this year, presuming uh, those estimates don't go down too much. It, obviously, uh, you have valuation in your favor. Is anything else? Yeah, I think it's a very inexpensive stock. Uh, when, you know, when we downgraded it in June, we sort of highlighted that, you know, you're exiting this year at a pretty low run rate that I think next year numbers look a little optimistic. So if, you know, if you look at their guidance that they gave last night, they're sort of implying Q4 is a dollar to a dollar ten. You know, next year's numbers, you know, close to five dollars. That, that number needs to come down quite a bit. And so I think, you know, the stock's not quite as inexpensive as it looks on forward-looking numbers. And they still have this big cash flow delta where their capex is well above depreciation. So I'd say the stock is inexpensive. Uh, I'm not sure it's it's inexpensive enough to be excited of its own if we're going to go through this week period. So I, I'm still kind of a believer in where they're headed long term. I think they, they can get through these product cycle issues. But I think they have a pretty tough year in the next 12 months. And I think, you know, I see the stock as, as kind of holding ground, but but not really, you know, that, showing that much upside in this environment. Joseph Moore, thanks very much for weighing in this morning. Thank you. And stay tuned for our first on CNBC interview with Intel CEO Bob Swan. That is later this morning on Squawk Alley at 11 Eastern. David. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I wanted to get to Goldman Sachs this morning as well because we did get important news from the, uh, the investment bank. It has settled with the Malaysian government, uh, we're told this morning, on the 1MDB scandal. What a story it is, of course, 1MDB. Remember, a development bank essentially raised, what, as much as... I think it was over $12 billion over time, but at least $4.5 billion of that was embezzled, was just spent on, oh, who knows what, financing movies like Wolf of Wall Street and all sorts of other things. Goldman raised a lot of debt for uh, 1MDB uh, and got paid as much as $600 million in fees. And we've been talking about a potential settlement now for years. In fact, as Dave, when David Solomon ascended to the role of CEO, he talked about trying to get this behind them as one of the many things that he was focused on. This is a very important development. The numbers, it's a $2.5 billion cash payment. So it is well below at least some of the numbers that we've heard through the years. The Malaysian government asking for perhaps at times as much as 7.5 to $8 billion. There is also $1.4 billion in what they're calling guaranteed recovery value of assets. But this is essentially refers to assets that have already been identified that 1MDB went out and bought uh, that have been valued 
that will either be sold or they can borrow against them. So it doesn't mean that cash is coming from Goldman Sachs to the Malaysian government to cover that. So the total is 3.9, but the really important component of it is the 2.5 billion in cash. Goldman, of course, has been increasing its reserves, its litigation reserves. It says it will add to its second quarter reserves as well. Its provision for that will increase materially, it says, uh, as a result of that. Uh, and that'll be reflected, of course, uh, in their filing. Um, still to come, though, is a settlement with the Department of Justice, which wanted a global settlement, but has been waiting to see what Goldman would do with the Malaysian government before moving ahead. Is it imminent? I'm told no, but it should be fairly near term in terms of a settlement there. We don't know what the numbers are going to be, guys. It could be another two and a half, three. Who knows in terms of money? But it won't necessarily. It certainly is not expected to be more than what they're paying at this point, the Malaysians. But I will leave that in the realm of speculation. Overall, though, Mike uh, and Carl, this is seen certainly as a positive for Goldman finally starting to really get this incredible scandal behind them. It's an amazing, cha amazing chapter being uh, put to bed, we hope, uh, for Goldman's sake, uh, David. Thanks for that. I think uh, we'll take a break here. Uh, we got a lot to get to this morning. American Express, obviously, we haven't touched on. Verizon results, and we'll talk to Hans Vestberg later on in the hour. Gold above 1900 for the first time in nine years. And Intel with four downgrades at least today, looking at its biggest drop on earnings in nearly 20 years. We're back in a moment. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. COVID cases in this country passing the 4 million mark, adding 1 million in just the past 15 days and hospitalizations near a new peak. Let's get to Meg Terrell for all the latest. Hey, Meg. Hey, Carl. Well, new cases in the U.S., around 70,000 again yesterday, staying at this sort of new plateau. Hospitalizations approaching that peak that we saw in the spring and deaths also increasing another day with more than 1,000 new deaths yesterday. Uh, per capita, new cases in terms of the states adding the most, you know, still Florida, Texas, California, Arizona, but also a number of other states, more than 400 cases per million people yesterday, Nevada, Louisiana, Alabama, and Georgia. Uh, and this, guys, uh, as we're seeing testing turnaround times getting longer in these places, as long as two weeks uh, for some Quest Diagnostics customers. With that in mind, I wanted to try out a different kind of testing. Uh, and I tried an at-home test collection kit using the Rutgers uh, saliva test um, from a company called Vault Health. And here's my experience. Check it out. I ordered the test kit on a Wednesday afternoon, answering a few questions about any symptoms and potential exposure to COVID-19. The test kit arrived by UPS the next morning. The next step was to collect the sample. Vault requires a medical professional supervised through a Zoom call. Hello. I was surprised to be able to see someone right away when I clicked into the website. 
She guided me through opening the kit and spitting in the tube. It's not complicated, but it's more than you'd expect, so it can take a few minutes. You then package the sample back up, wipe down the shipping materials, and drop it back off at UPS or FedEx. I got a notification my sample arrived by the next day. Vault says its turnaround time for results is then 48 to 72 hours. Anything after that, I really would worry about people taking tests and believing that the test they took is worth anything when the results come. Sure enough, two days later, I got an email saying my results were in. Negative! And guys, this is not the only company providing at-home test collection. The FDA has authorized about a dozen companies to provide this service. And important to note, this is just home collection. This is not yet that sort of holy grail of actually being able to perform the test at home, sort of like a pregnancy test. That is the hoped for next wave, guys. Hey, Meg, it's David. Yeah, I mean, I guess the key question here is accuracy. Also on these instant tests, or I should say the rapid tests as well. I mean, Major League Baseball dealing with this. Juan Soto, I think, negative, negative for those, but positive, uh, you know, in a different test, the one that is more conclusive. What about how much we can actually believe when we get the results? It's the question, of course. For this test, this is the Rutgers test that got emergency use authorization a few months ago. Uh, the company says that they have perhaps a false negative rate of around 10%, which they say is better than other PCR diagnostics tests. As you point out, those point-of-care tests, the ones that are done uh, with the Abbott machines or the antigen tests, uh, they do tend to have a higher false uh, negative rate. So uh, it's recommended if somebody has symptoms to be retested if you get a negative uh, with a PCR, another kind of PCR test. Um, but of course, all of these, that is the main question. Yeah. Well, it's got to be better than what's going on right now. Uh, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, of course, reporting on all things related to uh, the spread of the virus and the treatments for it and the testing, of course. Let's take a look at shares of Verizon because we're going to be speaking to Hans Vesberg, the company's chairman and CEO, later in this hour. Of course, Verizon reporting earnings today following AT&T yesterday. Not apples to apples comparisons, though, when it comes to um, customer additions. So we'll go through that as well with Mr. Vesberg. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. China ripped off our prized intellectual property and trade circuits, causing millions of jobs all across America. It sucks supply chains away from America. We stopped pretending Huawei is an innocent telecommunications company. It's just showing up to make sure you can talk to your friends. 
We've called it what it is, a true national security threat, and we've taken action accordingly. That's the Secretary of State yesterday talking about what he called the virulent strain of communism out of China and asking the Chinese people to distance themselves from Xi. We'll talk more about that speech and how it may impact American business and American investing in a moment. China has ordered the U.S. to close the consulate in Chengdu. It's a retaliation to the U.S. ordering the closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston. Eunice Yun is in Beijing to talk about uh, just what this means in terms of tensions and how strained they're becoming. Hi, Eunice. They're very strained, Carl. Uh, the Chinese foreign minister referenced the deterioration in relations with his German counterpart today, uh, saying that the U.S. is entirely blamed to blame for this, these difficulties and that no country, he said, with a conscience would side with the U.S. On, the, on China. Now, this, these comments came after Secretary, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made that blistering speech overnight where he was calling on countries in the free world to ban against China and just stop short of asking for regime change here in China. So uh, the Chinese foreign ministry, as you'd expect, dismissed those remarks. Uh, they also uh, said that they were had told the consulate in Chengdu to uh, close up that they would be closing, and state media says that it's going to be uh, 72 hours in which the uh, staff there will have to leave. State TV has set up a live cam so that uh, the population here can watch um, the people leaving if once in, uh, they, they start uh, walking out, if they do. Um, 38 million people have been logged on watching the activities, um, with some people asking when the fire brigade would arrive, uh, referencing the uh, widely distributed video of the consulate of, in Houston uh, purportedly showing Chinese officials uh, burning documents in open bins. Now, the state media has been explaining why Chengdu was chosen. Uh, their argument has been that this is a consulate that is very important to the United States because from the Chinese state media perspective, they believe that uh, the U.S. Uh, tracks what happens in Tibet, uh, very sensitive for China from that consulate, and that they um, they gather information on strategic weapons as well um, in the area. At the same time, that consulate is much smaller than, say, Beijing or Shanghai, and less significant uh, the Chinese believe um, to the overall U.S.-China relationship, especially when it comes to business. So um, the signal that uh, state media say Beijing is sending is that uh, they want to show that China is tough against the U.S.'s actions. At the same time, they want to show that there is some um, open, there is some room uh, for negotiation and that they don't want to see um, any more escalation. Uh, Eunice Yoon uh, talking about the consulate move today, uh, which is obviously weighing on sentiment. Eunice, thanks. Uh, Mike Santoli, you know, it comes at the same time as the U.K. has suspended the extradition treaty with Hong Kong. And it'll be uh, interesting to see whether or not China thinks this is a group effort, this pressure that's being put upon them. Right. And, um, you know, I, I do think we have a, a little bit of a game theory thing of trying to gauge what is a commensurate response or an escalation from here. Uh, not sure how exactly 
that filters into, you know, the outlook for for business that are now dealing with, you know, a more acute crisis right here or uh, or for trade flows or anything like that. You know, you look at gold over nineteen hundred dollars an ounce. Many, many reasons for that. You know, low negative, uh, basically negative real uh, interest rates and, and momentum and concerns about uh, central bank policies. But this isn't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, hurting the run in gold and and uh, the yen rallying against the dollar, things like that. So it's one of those things you have to kind of, you know, have it on the dashboard to see if it if it becomes more of a um, of a day to day uh, market influence. Uh, Mike, you're absolutely right. Uh, dollar yen uh, four month low and uh, we'll get some uh, economic data. Meantime, uh, new home sales at the top of the 10. There's the opening bell, guys. Uh, and uh, Brett filling in the S&P, you can see there on the CNBC heat map. Uh, AXP was the other interesting one. 29 cent was a beat, uh, but revenues did miss. Uh, provisions 1.6, global customer spend down 20 uh, in the first half of July, David, and that was better than the down 40 on the April trough. But uh, T&E, man, down 75, and a lot of that is corporate travel. <laughs> Amazing. And we all know, of course, um, business people are not traveling, or certainly many of them are not. And one of the key questions uh, longer term is how many will return to what was a regular schedule of getting on flights? Certainly in the, in the world of which I'm a part with investment bankers and the like, it does seem, and CEOs and senior executives, it does seem as though there is going to be uh, a reduced amount of travel, even when we do get to the other side of the pandemic on the business side. But you're right, Carl. We were watching these numbers closely. They did end the second quarter at, at American Express with $6.6 billion of credit reserves. That's $2.2 billion higher than the reserve level they had on their balance sheet after uh, at the beginning of, the, of uh, Q1. And as you point out, uh, $1.7 billion of credit reserves they added at the end of the first quarter. Another $628 million reserve build was taken in the second quarter as we take a look at those shares. Um, now, they're not doing as much volume. So at the same time, you don't have as many people who are not paying back bills because they didn't actually charge. Um, yeah, David, I was going to say, Mike, I don't know. You yeah. know, it's it's, it's in ahead. this weird inter intermediate zone. Uh, the 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 more uh, kind of traditional credit card issuers have been some of the weakest uh, stocks in the you know in the market. If you look at Capital One and Discover and Synchrony and things like that, obviously American Express always gets a premium on them. And those guys are seen uh, really as um, as very key reopening type plays. A lot of days are either the best or worst performing uh, group. Uh, American Express is in there uh, with this other kind of set of challenges. Not too much worry on the credit side, as you say, uh, relative to the other ones. But uh, yeah, where does, uh, where does the kind of high end and business spending come back? That's a big question, Carl. Yeah. Um, Mike, watching, you know, wow, something it's, it's, we've been uh, talking fast. about. Sorry, Carl. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. Go ahead, David. I was just going to say uh, the barbell on the S&P this morning is indicative of the conversation around chips. Intel's the biggest S&P loser. AMD is the biggest uh, S&P winner. This note out of Bernstein, David, as, uh, as they go to underperform, uh, a pretty remarkable comment here. Ordinarily, we frown on moving ratings directly on an earnings night, but this 
Our 45th Intel earnings call was the worst we've seen in our career covering the company. From here, we see things growing increasingly wow. painful. And as we said, I counted at least uh, five downgrades from Deutsche, Barclays, Bernstein, and others. Yeah, and obviously we had that analyst who joined us at the top of the hour, Mike. You mentioned AMD, which I think is important. I'd like to take a look at that, but that is quite a significant uh, loss. As, as we learned, it's not a, a loss of, of market cap. It's not just about the delay uh, in the chip. As you look at AMD surging there, it's also about that second half guidance, Mike. But interesting that AMD is continuing to build on its growing strength as it really has become over these last well, it's already, let's call it five years at least, under the leadership of Lisa Su, uh, a serious competitor to Intel. Bob Swan, of course, will be coming up later. Yeah, it's amazing. And it also shows why, you know, tech investors are often so hesitant to lead with the value proposition. I mean, Intel's been, you know, cheaper than everything for a long time. People talk about NVIDIA having surpassed it for a bit in market cap. Uh, AMD always look super expensive if you just look at the traditional metrics. Uh, but basically, uh, the companies with the market share momentum uh, and, the, and the kind of better path to the next technology are the ones that tend to win. And, uh, and you're definitely seeing that in the market today. Yeah. Speaking of the market overall, Mike, something we've been talking about, of course, is the, is the level of additional potentially speculation and the interest of retail investors. I don't know if you saw the numbers from E-Trade. Of course, E-Trade is getting bought by Morgan Stanley. Uh, which is looking increasingly like a very good deal for them. Uh, Mike, you know, I know you've been covering this. I mean, they added 1.01 million daily active revenue trades in the second quarter, or reported 1.01 million daily active revenue trades. And they added, uh, what was the number? 327,000 new retail accounts. To put that in comparison, for the second quarter of last year, they added 34,000 accounts. Yeah, that's quite a move. It's amazing. I mean, the entire industry saw a rush of new customers. Uh, we talked about the shutdown effect and and just this idea that you had these such dramatic market moves in a concentrated period of time. It just drew a lot of folks in. Uh, it's it's really wrong to ca- talk about the Robin Hood traders. Uh, maybe that's just kind of the, the, the name we're giving everybody who's kind of new to this and uh, on a small time basis speculating. Other indicators, if you look at options trading volume, uh, Goldman Sachs had some numbers. It now surpasses share volume. And a lot of those options, it's just surged uh, in the last several months. It, a lot of them are very short dated. So really, they are just these binary short term bets. It's very, very uh, high churn type activity. It's good for the brokers. The question is, is it just a phase where we're seeing a lot of this sort of new experimental money, people getting into it, seeing how it works? By definition, it's zero sum minus the minus the costs. Right. So if that's all this is, then it, it, it might not be uh, something that's enduring. And, and companies like Schwab long ago went to more of an asset gathering model uh, rather than just promoting volume. But it's very in- interesting to see this new element in the market at, at the same time where a lot of traditional investors, whether traditional retail or even big institutions, have been a little bit hesitant to uh, to kind of embrace risk right here, Carl. Yeah. Um, Carl, you know, something you've been focusing on and you asked John Stanky about it yesterday, of course, the CEO of AT&T was related to movie releases. And we did get some news this morning from Disney delaying indefinitely the release of Mulan, which they've been awaiting hitting theaters and pushing back as well. Avatar and Star Wars releases, at least potentially a year. You know, Carl, the relationship between the producers and distributors of movies and those that uh, show them is changing dramatically. 
Uh, it's unclear where it's going to end up in terms of when the exhibitors are really going to be able to open up in a, in a widely speaking uh, and have people uh, going again. And what the approach is going to be of the Disney's, uh, of the Warner's, of the Paramount's as well, which I think also had news this morning about an upcoming movie that was planning to go to the big screen and may end up on the smaller screen. I know. Uh, uh, Paramount pushed back uh, the sequel to Top Gun, David. Uh, this is the fourth delay for Mulan, which, which was originally a March release. Uh, you talked about Tenet with Stanky yesterday, even as AMC insists they're going to reopen in mid-August. So a lot of uh, conflicting signals regarding theatrical distribution. I did notice our own parent, Comcast, uh, got near 44 this morning. That's the highest since February 26, as they have this uh, renewal, uh, multi-year renewal on the content carriage agreement with Sinclair. Uh, but, man, uh, David, media is tough especially on the studio part. No doubt. And, and, you know, again, we're going to keep a close eye on this changing relationship because it really is uh, a significant one that is in the midst of great upheaval, as so much else is. Um, guys, deal news this morning. Not much, but there was a deal NRG announcing uh, this morning. Um, fairly large deal, in fact, a $3.6 billion uh, transaction this morning for that, uh, for that energy company. Um, and uh, let me just find the there. There's a look at NRG. I also wanted to see uh, the owner of Direct Energy, Centrica uh, PLC. I don't know if we have it, but they had on their books this asset, Direct Energy, uh, at a, a, a number that was far less than the 3.6 or so billion that NRG is spending here, all in cash, as you see. I do expect 300 million in, in synergies, and so you saw a very positive response in those shares. Uh, in, uh, in, in uh, trading in the U.K. Um, this morning as a result. But again, a utility deal of some size and significance, over $700 million in EBITDA uh, contributed by direct energy. Carl? Guys, I was going to just mention um, Tesla. It's not news-driven, but it's down uh, under 1400 bucks. It's down 8%. It's been yesterday very, very uh, kind of uh, non-reaction to, uh, to its results uh, the night before. And it seems like it's part of this whole momentum unwind. Um, and, uh, you know, hard to, hard to say. You look at that chart and say anything's really changed. It's really just giving back some of this massive uh, run higher. The 20-day average for this stock, not to get all technical, but it's like 1390. So it had this huge move uh, pull back down, and it's only merely gotten down to its average price over the last, you know, four weeks week. So it just shows you how extended the stock had gotten there. We'll have to see if this is a, a more broad risk appetite indicator for this category of stocks, Carl. Yeah, uh, Nikola's lower this morning, Mike. Uh, Tesla was near 1800 on uh, July 13th. And as you can see, below 1400 today, one downgrade today uh, from Daiwa Securities. We'll talk to Verizon's Hans Vesperger later on in the hour about that, their company's results. Uh, 60% of retail open. What's happening with the American consumer as the Dow's down 165? Dow's headed lower for the week, but there are some gainers a week to date, led by Chevron, Coke, Pfizer, McDonald's, Raytheon. Speaking of Dow components, we're going to talk to Verizon's Hans Vesperg in a moment on a beat on the top of the bottom line and even some guidance when we come back. Got some flash PMI data for that. We'll get to Rick Santelli. Morning, Rick. Good morning, Carl. And keep in mind, these are July preliminaries and this series started in July of 17. So three years in running, 
51.3 on a manufacturing PMI. That's the best level since January. And, of course, the all-time low there was 36.1. That was in April. We look at the PMI for the service sector, 49.6. Not quite up to 50, but also the best level since January. And the low read there was 26.7 in April. The composite PMI right on 50, right on the nose. And do keep in mind that we are seeing lots of excitement in the foreign exchange markets. The euro is king today against the dollar and the Chinese currency. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick. Thanks for that, Rick Santelli. As we said earlier, Verizon's Hans Vestberg will join us on this Friday morning. In a moment, don't go anywhere. Shares of Verizon having a good morning in response to the company's earnings, in which it reconfirmed prior guidance, adjusted EPS growth seen at between negative 2 and plus 2 percent. Overall capital expenditures for the year still in a range of 17.5 to 18.5 billion. Let's bring in the company's chairman and CEO, Hans Vestberg, to learn more about the quarter. Hans, always good to have you join us. I want to start off on the state of the U.S. consumer because you have a good window into that, given how important a wireless service is to most people in terms of paying that bill. Specifically, the one and a half million or so people who are on the Keep America Connected pledge. What did you see from those people in terms of their ability to continue to pay all or part of their wireless bill? Thank you, David, and uh, it's great to be on the show. I mean, first of all, uh, what we're seeing in this quarter, of course, a, a wider impact on the pandemic, the economical downturn that we had in the first quarter. But uh, what is encouraging to see is, of course, that uh, almost 80% of all these uh, customers that has pledged for the Keep America Connected, which means we're not disconnecting them. Uh, due to financial problems in these times. Uh, 80% of them are paying some part of their uh, their bill. So th- there is an interest of keeping this up, and we will work with all of these customers uh, in order to refinance the debt and all of that. And this is not unusual. I mean, I would say our delinquent receivables today are almost similar to fri- prior to the pandemic. We always work this. And our share numbers are, are great. You know, we have a very loyal customer base. I believe that all these customers will continue to be our customers one year from now. I mean, that's how we work. And we want to keep our customers that have been so loyal to work with Verizon. So we feel pretty good about it, I have to say. Right. And is that why you chose to keep them counted as customers, even if they're not paying their bill? I mentioned it because we heard from AT&T yesterday. They made a different decision. They Uh, 340,000 people who weren't paying, even though they were kept connected, they did not count. Why did you take a different approach, Hans? As I said, I mean, 80% of them are uh, paying some part of their bill. So these are customers that we believe uh, will continue with us. And we always, I mean, on the base of over 100 million consumers using Verizon every day, of course, you always have some customers having financial troubles. And uh, that's not more now than it has been for or prior to the pandemic. Uh, again, we have systems and we work with our customers, so we believe we're going to keep these customers. Yeah. Uh, are you concerned? I would have to imagine you are, though, for example, in the expiration of the $600 additional unemployment benefit. I would think that that's very helpful for people to continue to pay their wireless bill to the potential slowdown we're seeing in the economic reopening and the vitality that, that we saw, at least in parts of May and June. Is that a concern for you right now, Hans? I think the stimulus packages that we have seen in the second quarter have been important. Uh, and if they go forward or not, of course, we will work with either scenario. There will might be a, a slight impact of it, but 
we also need to re remind ourselves that uh, the mobility broadband uh, services are sort of essential in today's world. I mean, uh, our customers uh, need it for being in contact with friends, not only that, doing businesses. So this is an essential infrastructure that is needed in the country. And again, I think it's going to be important. And that shows how resilient our business model is, even if it's a downturn as well as in an upturn. So I feel really good about that we have built the best network that customers are loving and, and staying with us. Yeah, you know, we've talked in the past, of course, about 5G for obvious reasons, so important to your, to your current strategy. Some reports around today that Apple may delay the release of its 5G phones. I know on the call you were asked about it. You said you wouldn't comment on that specifically, but you did say right. as well, certainly that, that, that Apple is very important to that overall ecosystem. Um, when are we going to start to see these phones out there in a significant way using the network that you're constructing? No, you're, you're right. I mean, you and I have talked about our 5G strategy for a long time, and I'm, I'm really excited for the second half because we have so much launches coming in the second half of 2020. I mean, and we are basically on plan or ahead of all the things we have committed to. So important is that we're building a transformative 5G, uh, which is with the ultra wideband that nobody else has with the highest speeds in the world on 5G. And then we're going to have nationwide in the second half. And then we also have the best 4G network. So our customers are going to get a great opportunity here. But not only that, of course, with a high penetration of iOS in the U.S. market and in the Verizon customer base, it's going to be in a more important event when, uh, uh, when Apple is coming out with a 5G phone. I'm excited. We're going to be ready. We have a great network on, from all the way from the ultra wideband, the 5G nationwide, as well as having the best 4G network. So I think that our customers are going to feel how transformative our 5G is. It's not an incremental from our 4G. It's a transformative. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And uh, I think our customers are excited as well. Hans, obviously, uh, past few months, we've been in an economic crisis, so it's hard to know what the underlying trends are in terms of competition. But have you seen any changing in dynamics following the T-Mobile Sprint closing of their deal? It's only been a few months, but what do you expect in terms of the competitive landscape? I think that we are well positioned. We have worked with our with our network uh, for three years right now to put it in the best place for 5G and all the things I previously talked about. And not only that, I mean, we have worked with our mix and match that our customers have a chance to work with us. And in this quarter, we had a record uptake on our, uh, on our premium uh, unlimited. So our customers are moving up the ladder to be part of our services. And think about also, we have our Disney Plus, we have our Apple Music on top of it. So I think we're Ronan that is running Verizon Consumer group he has a really good plan how he's going to compete if it's needed and this is nothing new for us i mean we have been leading this market for a long time and of course everyone wants to beat us we will not let them beat us we, we will just execute on the plans we have and the and the simple strategy with the network services we have and the best network um verizon media group not a, a overly significant part of your uh, of your uh, operations hans but but a big dollar number still, given the size of the overall company. Advertising has been a tough market to be in right now. Do you have any expectations there or guidance to give, or is it simply too hard to know what's, what's coming for Verizon Media Group? So first of all, Verizon Media Group has done an outstanding job in the second quarter. Our 
uh, our active users using all our, our services like Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Sports, etc., has just been growing tremendously. Uh, but the advertising, as I said, that has come down, and we came down 24%, which was expected in this quarter. Uh, but what we saw in the last month of the quarter, that is now coming down slightly, down to probably 18 19%. And we think that actually in the third quarter, we will come down to low uh, double digits. So we clearly see that's, uh, that changing on the advertising side. And, but let's see how it uh, turns out. But clearly, our plans is to move that. And remember, Verizon Media Group came from a situation with double-digit decline, basically back to zero, and then the pandemic happened. We have a good cost base, and, and the team has done great on our new products. Yeah. Well, speaking of advertising, Hans, uh, you know, you suspended your ads on Facebook. Um, are you revisiting that at all? Can you give us an update in terms of your approach to that platform as an advertiser? First of all, I mean, our brand, we, we're, we feel that we have a premium brand and it's so important where we show up. And, and in this case, uh, uh, content that was not appropriate showed up close to our uh, brand. And, and we have commercial agreement with Facebook as any other advertiser. And when that happens, we take a pause and then we tell them this is what has to be remedied. Uh, and that conversation is ongoing with Facebook. Uh, we have given them the things that we think needs to be fixed for us to feel safe to go in there again. Uh, the conversation is continuing. It's not concluded, but this is nothing strange for us. We did the same with YouTube two years ago and we fixed the problem. So hopefully we will be able to fix this problem with uh, Facebook as well. Do you know when? Have you had any conversations with them about it? No, I, yeah, we have had a lot of conversation about it, but I don't have a timeline at the moment uh, from my team. I mean, my team is talking constantly to the team of Facebook how, how to find the, the solutions. Uh, we haven't found them yet, so I don't have a timeline. Finally, Hans, I'd love to come back to something we always talk about, which is 5G into the home. Um, I mentioned it in part because John Stanky joined us yesterday, of course, uh, runs AT&T. He seemed to indicate that, you know, in his opinion, the home wireless 5G into the home is not going to be a replacement for broadband. You've taken a somewhat different tack. How do you respond to those who say, no, nah, it's not going to get there. Sure, it's great, but people are not going to be using it as a replacement for for wired broadband. Uh, first of all, I cannot respond to to comments from someone that is not doing it. I mean, we, we have been on to this for now two years. We are re really excited about it as a broadband replacement. Uh, we see an extremely good throughput, good coverage. Uh, we are doing self-install. Our customer will be able to, to order the CP by themselves, set it up and have broadband at the home without having a field tech coming out to the home, etc. I think it's just a totally transformative business we're, we're creating. And we have said in, in, in the second half of this year, we will get our next generation of CP, which is the router that you have home, uh, that's going to be more powerful. And that's going to make a huge difference. So we're going to have 10 plus markets that we're going to launch 5G home in the, this quarter. We feel that this is a really good uh, solution and it's a transformative. And it's uh, the next generation of, of, of giving broadband to everyone that needs it. Uh, so it's a totally different uh, business model and we are excited about it. And you have the network in place to be able to deliver that, right? You don't need to necessarily buy, uh, buy anything to add to and or help your delivery of that service into the home? 
David, this is the beauty of our model. <laughs> we build one network and we have multiple services. So we're going to have 5G mobility on it and the same technology and the same radio base station. We have 5G home and we're going to have 5G mobile edge compute, which is an enterprise service with low latency, which we announced last year together with Amazon, where we're basically bringing the compute and processing to the edge for doing low latency transaction. Think about a factory that's going to have the robots connected to 5G instead of cables. How quickly they can refurbish the whole factory, etc. So we build three business cases on the same infrastructure. And this was the strategy we outlined already in 2017 when we built the Verizon Intelligent Edge Network. So a lot of things are coming yeah. together for us in the second half of this year. And we'll be watching closely, Hans. Certainly that lack of latency is so important in every conversation about 5G. Hans, thank you as always. Appreciate your taking some time. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.